0: with uh, Professor Dominik Mierzejewski about his latest book on the role of China's province under the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, so today's episode is a part of the Asian Debates of the University of Wuch project, supported financially by the Ministry of Education and Science Social Responsibility of Science Grant, and with the partnership of kasimir uh, Powaski Foundation and Radio Łódź, uh, who took care of media patronage. So, hello, Dominique. Hello, good to be here. Uh, So, maybe let's start with uh, briefly introducing your book. Can you uh, describe the rationale of your book, uh, which is titled China's Provinces and the Belt and Road Initiative? What is your perspective on the centrally shaped Belt and Road Initiative project?
1: Well, first, I think in the most important rationale, it was, to present non-state-centric approach to China's foreign policy. And I guess, at least in my my eyes, in my view, uh, this book contributes to, to, to alternative approach. And I try to persuade to the audience that the foreign policy of China is far more complex than we can imagine uh, taking Beijing-based government as a core in, in, in China's external policies. So definitely the second reason here is to to look in, into something more that, than the central government in Beijing. I travel across China. I, I did more than 40 trips to mainland. I studied in Shanghai, traveled across the country, especially in late 1990s and early 2000s. And I discovered local China, especially of China in our southeast, Huadong China and southern China. And that, I think, brought me to study local China. But uh, BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, here is also kind of a starting point. When for the first time this BRI was announced by uh, Xi Jinping in Astana in 2013, I immediately recognized that it's not only about strategy foreign policy, but rather about managing domestic politics, domestic interests, and trying to bring uh, you know, uh, a very diverse areas, of competing forces under the umbrella of central government. That's why I, I took this approach. And-, and briefly about the perspective on centrally-shaped BRI project, to what extent it was a Beijing-based government initiative, or was just Beijing-based government was responsive to all these local interests? Briefly about trains, and I think this is this is this is the core when it comes to the BRI and Euro-Asian land bridge. The first block train service via Inner Mongolia began 2009, and that was initiative of Hewlett Packard and Foxconn logistic department. That they came to the conclusion that utilizing Euro-land bridge, asian land bridge, would be more profitable than sea shipment and. They started to lobby in Beijing, and they hope to have support from Beijing. And the very illustrative example here is the government on Chong- of Chongqing and Hewlett Packard itself, as I mentioned before. Uh, two players lobbied in Beijing for op- opening the inland channel, and finally, central government took this idea, and uh, you know, just make kind of you know, centrally planned initiative, however, from the very local uh, arena. And of course, the central government is responsible for navigating and managing relations with other nations. So, when jabbao traveled Moscow. He did also kind of a connection with Kazakhstan, Belarus and Poland. And when Jabao's administration pushed the project and reached the agreement with Russia, Kazakhstan, and finally with Central Europe. So, from my perspective, the BRI is kind of an umbrella institution, whatever you call it, that manages local interests. And as I said, this is a very illustrative example how local forces and multinational companies lobbied in Beijing for. Then uh, the central lead project. However, the initiative started from the very luck level. So that's my two points about the first question, Marcin.
0: Thank you very much. Now, can we talk a little bit more about your field work in China? As I can see in the book, you traveled from the northeastern border with Russia to southwestern peripheries of China, bordering Myanmar. Was it easy to discuss the BRI at the local level? And to what extent uh, people you interviewed felt free to talk about the Chinese central government?
1: Well, I I think uh, as as you asked the question, it's pretty difficult to answer. Let me start with the kind of a brief introduction to both places, Heilongjiang province and, and Yunnan. As we all know, I mean, uh, the provinces are at China's periphery. The physical distance from political center in Beijing, the cultural differences in case of Heilongjiang, Russian influences, and in case of Yunnan province, Myanmar, Thailand influences with the historical uh, historical connotation of areas forget by the political centers shape the status of both provinces. Uh, there is a common saying in China, Shanggao, Huang and the mountains are high and the empire is far away. but two thousand six two thousand nine uh, I, I realized that the government in Beijing tried to you know tried to take these provinces as a very big asset in their foreign policy, naming both plus Xinjiang, autonomous region as bridgeheads bridgeheads Cha uh, Chaotoubao. Bao. It, it, Hu Jintao used this military origins term, uh, and, uh, you know, bridge means a strategically important area of ground around the end of the bridge or other place of possible crossing over the body of water, which at the time of conflict is sought to be defended or taken over by by, by Belgian forces. So it's a purely meritary term. And then, of course, um, over the period of time when Xi Jinping took power, they changed this term into radiation centers. However, still, they recognize the importance of bridgeheads in their policy. Why they re- realize this is important? Because uh, what I've learned from my interviews in Yunnan province, the bureaucrats in Yunnan province explained that Yunnan province is a place when three big civilizations are meeting together. So this is from from this perspective, bridgeheads are very important. Heilongjiang is also a place when Russian civilization, I mean, uh, Orthodox Church civilization, Christian civilization, in fact, and Chinese civilization trying to coexist uh, one with each other. So this is the first very important initial point when it comes to Uh, you know, when it comes to Yunnan province and Heilongjiang. The second observation from Heilongjiang rather than Yunnan is that still the mistrust is there. And I've learned it from my interviews. The history of uh, relations uh, between uh, Qing's empire and Russian empire in 19th centuries Pretty there. It's pretty pretty, pretty important for, for local bureaucrats. And, and they're trying to, to, to explain the relationship through the prism of a very tense relations in the 19th century. Just briefly, the major problems, for example, occurs uh, in 1898. The Qing uh, government leased parts of Liaoning Peninsula to Russia as a base for economic and military expansion. But from the perspective of Heilongjiang and the people of Heihe, uh, you know, the city uh, borders with Black Ovestiansk. still remember that the, the critical moment was taken by armed Russian Cossacks who forced more than 3,000 people to be deported across the Amur River. Uh, so, so definitely this is very important. And what I've learned from interviews, and it, I, I was surprised in Heilongjiang. The, the history is still there, and I think it was pretty important. When I talked to people in Hayhat, uh, this is also a very illustrative example how the relations between China and Russia are um, on, on the ground in, in Heihe. People in Heihe complained that all initiatives are sponsored by China. What they said to me, Russian local governments across the border are corrupted, not eager to reform. We Chinese did a lot since Deng Xiaoping took power, however, Russian. They're really you know, stubborn to a certain degree, and they are not eager to reform. They said, moreover, there are loopholes in the border trade supervision. They said Russian mafia is very active in, in, in China, in Heilongjiang province. And I was really surprised that they said all these Russian activities across the border in China undermines the reputation of the province. The local bureaucrats said this to me. So, to a certain degree, uh, we all, uh, you know, reading media now, we have the picture of Sino-Russian uh, cordial relations. However, when you just look into the reality there, in Heihe City, um, just on the river, on a riverbank, uh, Amur River, you, you can discover slightly different perspectives. When it comes to Yunnan province, uh, I think this is pretty relevant to recognize the Yunnan province as a very active body in China's foreign policy. And let me just briefly explain this. If you just jump to this book, you will find a lot of details about it briefly. In March 1999, Jiang Zemin uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, proposed a development strategy for the Western region. Namely, they call it Shibu da Kaifa. And quickly after this proposal was launched uh, in August the same year, a group of scholars, this is very important, from Kunming uh, 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 proposed Bangladesh China India Myanmar Economic Corridor. Now we see economic corridors as a part of centrally planned um, uh, policy, but we need to acknowledge that behind all the central initiatives are provinces. And since then, the concept was developed by both local central government. 2012, four countries opened uh, BCMI, Business Council. Then, Economic Corridor was launched. And finally, uh, Business Association was opened in 2016, and central government accepted uh, Yunnan's position in this Economic Corridor. So, I think from my interviews, uh, Yunnan Province has slightly different approach than Heilongjiang, being on this heihe tengchong line uh, in China. Uh, you know, Yunnan Province be happy to have a middleman, intermediary position, uh, and try to introduce more developed provinces um, uh, from, you know, East Coast, Shanghai, Guangdong. Uh, being a kind of a middle person for them to make businesses across Southeast Asia. And I think this is very important. And what was said in Kunming by local bureaucrats, they, they really, you know, they, they the local government does not prefer uh, to, to cooperate with partners uh, from outside of China, but rather have a partner inside China and be a middle person. So th- that might be pretty pretty important to 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 look at this, and uh, i think this is this is part of the picture here briefly about in interviews uh, i did a lot of interviews in mainland china and there's always a dilemma how to frame the question in chinese and how to understand the answers uh, and you need to be ready to always you know look between lines because this is kind of a culture that doesn't say everything in a very open manner. So you need to, you know, have a proper understanding of this. And just one example here, once I had a situation when I asked a bureaucrat uh, about the reality, and I asked this question exactly, what is the real position of this province in China's foreign policy? And they said, whoa, this is a big question, man. They said, just check two visits of our governor uh, outside of China, and you will know a lot. And that was the answer. And then throughout this, you know, throughout this um, suggestion, I realized that this part of China is very important in China's foreign policy. So, uh, you know, briefly to answer this question, and I think, I think this is pretty important to recognize what is between lines while talking to Chinese
0: uh, bureaucrats. Thank you very much, Dominique. Now, let's move to my next question. Uh, What are the differences between provinces in their approaches to the central government policy on the BRI? The majority of people see China as a very unitary state, but as you said in the book, the reality is just the opposite. Uh, Please explain more about this uh, topic how can we follow the horizontal competition and what impact does it have on policy planning in China?
1: Well, that's what I've learned on traveling and talking to people across mainland. Plus, of course, the the big portion of literature about uh, local development in China discussing the horizontal competition, as you said. I think the BRI itself that started from the very local level is an initiative that know at least you know aims at having all these provinces under one central government umbrella and i think you know this is kind of the guidelines that was reproduced by local governments allowing them to compete you know to 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 still be arrived from this perspective is a kind of a platform for horizontal competition briefly when you go to reports delivered in the local people's congresses across the whole country, they use a different types of labor, such, for example, a government in Sichuan and in Henan in, in Chongqing, whatever, he called it, it, his place as central area, bridgehead, radiation center, pound, bonding point. They used, you know, they discussed the special local BRI project. So this is pretty important to recognize the domestic, how the different uh, different provinces approach the BRI, uh, trying to win for their own interests and at the same time competing with neighboring provinces. For example, if you just look into a Yangtze River economic belt, this is a big failure, I would say, when it comes to integration of this country. Provinces... Uh, You know, provinces uh, don't trade each other, like Guangdong presents either a lukewarm or enthusiastic approach to BRI, however, trying to navigate its own development, not crossing border of Guangdong province. And this is, I think, a headache in Beijing. So this is the first. And the second, I think, when you just go to this, different places present a different a political confession to the rule of chairman xi jinping and it also from this perspective the central government might uh, you know check the the readiness to take part in central government projects so this is this is very important part of the picture and uh, for example if you just look into Halen jiang's position in the bri a, a very uh, i would say not very pessimistic but not very active, rather passive. And back then in time, Lu Hao, a former person in charge of uh, Chinese Yuflik, the communist Yuflik, was, was, was the governor there. And in his speeches, he used one verb uh, in Chinese when he discussed BRI, that is jie zhu. Jie zhu means to dock. Uh, Dog with the national policy, so throughout Jeju he expressed a very passive approach that indicated high expectations from the central government. Guangdong was totally different, I think when when you look into Guangdong, Guangdong, to be honest, did not carry birth right and what I found very interesting was Shanxi with Xian, you know the starting point of ancient seal growth and that was that that was really a big 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 issue for me. The the governor of uh, of, of Shanxi province declared that uh, by announcing the central plan, Beijing-based government creates the confidence, he said, trust or faith among people. So from this perspective, the government in Xi'an uh, was the only single in China presented its position as a BRI believer. So this is, this is pretty interesting to look at is uh, bringing back the horizontal competition. Uh, I think this is the, this is the key. Uh, the different interpretation uh, across the country when it comes to the BRI allows Beijing central government to position itself as the ultimate arbiter. And this game is all about being a Paramount leader among provinces. This is my uh, my my understanding of the BRI, so it allows them to, uh, I mean, the Beijing-based government to be uh, number one and governs the horizontal competition. And a very illustrative example is the cargo trains to Europe, it started by multinational companies, as I said, Dal Foxconn, and Hewlett Packard. But with BRI, all provinces. Took the lead, tried at least, tried to to take the lead in, in, in these connections. For example, Yiwu, Chongqing, Shuzhou, Chengdu, Zhengzhou, Wuhan, Harbin, etc. The competition is huge there. So this is this is my interpretation of the BRI, not centrally, you know, uh, a big uh, big uh, strategy, whatever we call it, but rather a tool for managing this very diverse country as
0: China is. These are some really interesting insights. Thank you very much. Now, as you know, I am particularly interested in Japanese politics. So let's talk a little bit about that. What is the role of Chinese local governments in shaping or affecting Beijing's policy towards Japan? Are there any special roles assigned to to particular provinces when it comes to developing relations with Tokyo?
1: Well, normally when you just think about this subject, what came to my mind is Liaoning province, that this province that is dedicated to, you know, for cooperation with Japan. If you just look into the north structure, Heilongjiang is rather about Russia. Uh, then you have uh, no. I'm sorry. I miss Jilin is about uh, about uh, Japan and learning about uh, about Korea. So th- this is this is I think uh, very important to recognize. However, before Abe's visit, uh, it was 2018, as far as I remember. Uh, that o- also was a big surprise to me. Sichuan was very active in in, in Japan. And the governor of Sichuan of province took part in a lot of initiative. Uh, for example, the China-Japan Governors Forum in Sapporo, together with people from Hebei province, Liaoning, Heilongjiang, Jiangxi, Jiangxi province, they, they did a lot of uh, uh, connections with, with Japan. And for the first time, that was before Abe's visit to China. The forum was chaired by Prime Minister Li Keqiang and Abe himself. So that was very important message that subnational level from both sides, uh, you know, is pretty important. And both sides have pushed the relations beyond the historically controversial issues like East China territorial disputes, history, etc. The 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 local channel allowed them to to certain degree bypass all these controversies in their relations. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is this is very important. And I think, especially for this local channel, especially in a time of crisis, uh, when was with Japan, uh, In Lee, the, the governor of, of, of Sichuan province, uh, was pretty active, and he did his job, I think. And from another perspective, the governor, had talks with the former Japanese Prime Minister Yokio Hatoyama, I'm not very familiar with Japanese politics, uh, the Democratic Party of Japan, then chairman of Japan Trade Promotion Agency, uh, and so on and so forth. So, you know, through this channel, the, the, the central government tried to incentivize uh, Japanese uh, business cycles and to trying to, you know, to allow uh, the relationship at the central level uh, to, to go uh, with more cordial relations. On the other hand, uh, I think, uh, what I've learned from my, uh, from my uh, research, uh, in January 2019, uh, the provincial government organized Sino-Japanese regional dialogue and invited the the Liberal Democratic Party's uh, people to, to Sichuan province. A deputy minister for environment, deputy minister of cabinet office, in September 2019 visited Sichuan. And what I find very interesting, and that's the role of local party structure in China's foreign policy, um, um, in, in 2019, they organized also a, a, a meetings with um, policymakers from, I'm not so sure, maybe you can explain it more, Shinsui Kai block uh, of uh, Toshihiro Nikai, the former Minister of Economy. So they're trying to, as I said, through this local channel, they're trying to attract uh, foreign uh, business cycles and foreign policymakers also trying to organize a lot of meetings with the US policy policymakers uh, and trying to, to navigate this. And as far as I remember, this delegation of, of high, high-ranking people from Japan paid a visit to China Telecom, China Western Information Center, you know, discussing 5G cooperation and so on and so forth. So I think uh, finally, they managed to open what they call the China Sichuan Japan Technological Park. Both sides would conduct research and develop new 5G technologies. Uh, so I think this is pretty important. However, however, the Beijing-based government, uh, you know, needs to pay the price for this. And if you just look into one thing, might be you know the stick and carrots uh, approach. But one one prize might be that the, the governor of Sichuan uh, province, a, a very you know helpful person in sino Japanese repression, let's say that way, 2018-2019, uh, uh, he was given a position of party secretary in Fujian province, and now he's, he's he he serves as a as a party secretary in Fujian province. Fujian province, as we know, is very important when it comes to the relations with Taiwan. Uh, So uh, looking into this kind of a black box of Chinese politics at the local level from the Foreign Affairs perspective uh, might illustrate a lot of stories that allows us to have a better understanding of what is going on inside mainland. And I believe that this book is exactly about this i'm back to you margin now
0: well thank you very much for your last insight like from my perspective what you just said this relation between uh, local provinces and central government and how those local governments uh, are trying to uh, are trying to open path for example to japan and then the central government like has to pay, pay the price this is actually in my opinion quite similar to for example a Chinese camp in, for example, Japanese Liberal Democratic Party, and here you mentioned Toshihiro Nikai, who is actually very active on this uh, on this topic of developing uh, good relations with China. And you're right that he, as one of the leaders of this pro-Chinese camp make often those, over, those overtures to, towards China and then later uh, the entire LDP has to deal with those kind of initiatives and this is actually, you know, the outcome of the final foreign policy. This is a very interesting insight here. So, thank you very much for your discussion today. Uh, just to remind everybody, today we we're discussing uh, Dominik Mirjevski's book published in Rutledge, China's provinces and the Belt and Road Initiative. If for everybody who is interested in some more fascinating stories from local china uh, i invite everyone to uh, read the book and i also would like to invite everybody to follow center of vision of debates podcasts and commentaries and other papers that you can find or on our website so once again thank you very much dominique for your conversation today it was very interesting and see you at, i hope to hear from you later Thank you very much for this.